0: and makes intercession for the transgressors. Amen. This is the word of the living and true God. Let's pause and ask for his help as we consider topically in the suffering and service of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we turn our attention now to this, your word, a word that was given to us as a light to our path, a word that speaks of your son, all that he suffered and all that he did, that we might behold him, that we might be rescued from our misery. He underwent misery, that we might be spared it. May your spirit attend to that which is proclaimed this morning. May you open our eyes and our ears, that we would see our Lord we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. The story is told about Adoniram Judson, the renowned missionary to Burma who endured untold hardships as he tried to reach the lost for Christ. For seven heartbreaking years, he suffered hunger and privation. During this time, he was thrown into Ava prison. I guess that's the name of the place and for 17 months was subjected to almost incredible mistreatment. As a result, for the rest of his life, he carried the ugly marks made by the chains and iron shackles which had cruelly bound him. Undaunted, upon his release, he asked for permission to enter another province where he might resume preaching the gospel. The godless ruler indignantly denied his request, saying, quote, my people are not fools enough to listen to anything a missionary might say, but I fear they might be impressed by your scars and turn to your religion. The question this morning for all of us as we have heard the word of God proclaimed, You, a, a passage, a prophecy that you've heard many, many times, a, really a chapter that, that describes the very suffering nature of Christ and all that he underwent. Do the scars of the Lord himself cause you to see his glory? I recognize the counterintuitive nature in the world in which we live to even make such a statement like that. We are often repulsed and even turned away from that which is ugly or, 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 or difficult to, to look at. But again, I ask you do the scars of Christ cause you to see his glory? Do you understand the, the nature of the suffering of Christ? Do you understand its purpose? You see, the world is befuddled by the notion of a suffering servant who came to rescue suffering sinners and bring them to salvation. Yet it was indeed, wasn't it, the will of God, His Father, to crush Him, to crush the Son for your sake. It was that eternal wrath that was yours to bear and which you could not bear that was placed on the Son, the Lord of glory. Are you fool enough to see the suffering and serving of Christ? And then behold Him, the glorious Savior, and bow your knee gladly before His throne. You see, if the answer is yes, you are no fool. the answer is yes to the questions that I've put in front of you. you, you are no fool. But if the answer is no, if you will not look upon him and see him for all of his beauty, even in the ugliness of the scars and the suffering, then you, my friend, are the worst kind of fool. You are the kind of fool that will regret that decision for eternity. You see, it was the will of God to bring to us not someone in pomp and circumstance, but a suffering servant. A one who would suffer all that you should be suffering and would suffer had he not entered this world in this way. The prophet of Isaiah is right in the middle of what we know as the servant songs of Jehovah. These are and have been adopted um, by most scholars and commentators as those songs, those messages speaking of the Lord himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. We know, of course, in Isaiah 53, it's difficult to read Isaiah 53, isn't it? If you know anything about your Bible and not see the Lord Jesus Christ all over the chapter, and of course He is, it's all about Him. It's all looking forward to that which would occur in His suffering, and His service, that He might save sinners. So this morning, I want to show you the glory of Christ demonstrated in the things He suffered and in the way He served in order to secure your salvation. I want to show you the glory of Christ demonstrated in the things that He suffered and the way He served in order to secure your salvation. Two points. You may have guessed them already. We will first consider Christ's suffering as highlighted or outlined for us in isaiah fifty three now I'm telling you I'm not going to deal with everything in the chapter. I've zeroed in primarily on the suffering elements of this particular chapter. and then we will turn our attention to the service of Christ as highlighted for us in the summary expression that the Apostle Paul uses in Philippians chapter two that that ancient hymn that shows us how the Lord of glory humbled himself to serve for the sake of the people he came to redeem. Christ's suffering and Christ's service as we consider once again the glory of Christ. Let's first consider his suffering as given to us in Isaiah 53. Maybe it's a shock to you, I don't know. But this suffering and the origin of this suffering, from where did it come? Where does it spring? Well, it springs, the prophecy Isaiah gives it to us, it, it, it springs from the declarative will of the Father of heaven. You might think that's strange, even odd. What Father would will or determine? as we see in verse 11, to crush his son for sinners of all people. It wasn't as though he did it for good people or, or nice people or pleasant people. Or No, he did it for those who were depraved in mind and in heart, those that would reject him, those that would not hear him, those that would not listen, those that would not see As the verse plainly tells us, it was the will of the Lord to crush the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10, I think I misspoke earlier. Verse 10, not verse 11. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. There's some items to consider here. Just in this simple, theologically charged statement. First, it has eternal roots in the triune God Himself. Now you're gonna put your thinking caps on a little bit here. I realize I'm gonna weed, I'm probably gonna wander into some you know theological weeds. I trust I won't lose you. I'll make it as simple as I know how. The prophet invokes. Notice the covenant name in this passage. It was the will of the Lord, verse 10. Notice the name. The name of Jehovah or Yahweh is invoked. This is the covenant name. This is the name you heard about in Acts chapter 7. It's the name that you recognize that was given to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. This is the name that's above every name. The name of which every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. This is the name that is to be revered and honored and hallowed and treated with the utmost dignity and respect. This is the triune God invoked here, the covenant name. Theologically, we are talking about what we know as the covenant of redemption. That is to say, the covenant that happened outside of time and space, long before you were here, I was here, long before there was anything here, long before there was anything of anything here. It is a time and place, as it were, in which the triune God covenanted together to do the very work that you read of in Isaiah 53. What is it that work, that covenant? Well, it was the Father's will to send His Son. It was the Son's intention and His will that He would come, that He would enter into our world, that He would take to Himself all of the weakness of humanity, as saved and apart from sin, suffer under the hands of wicked and cruel people, and die a miserable, horrible, cursed death, it was the Spirit's responsibility to uphold the Son throughout it all. This in eternity past determined why that He might save you. All necessary, if there is to be salvation, if there is to be any hope in this world, Jesus Christ had to agree. The Son of God in eternity past had to agree with His Father that He would take upon this responsibility, knowing full well, infinitely so, what that means. It means that it will be the will of His Father to crush Him. That leads us, of course, to the reality that this was decreed by the Father. This wasn't an accident. This wasn't a, a situation in which it was happenstance. It just sort of worked out that way. And uh, Here came a good man who uh, was nice to people, who served people, who even did these miraculous things for people, who then was mistreated by people. no. This was determined by, the fa- by our Lord's Father in heaven. Decreed to happen according to His purpose, to His plan. This was not a matter of which various circumstances just sort of ran their course. It is to say that every nugget, every piece of minutia, every minute, every moment, it was the will of the Father. To crush his son, Peter appeals to this very point in Acts chapter two and verse twenty-three. There we read, and maybe I should probably turn there because I'm probably going to butcher it if I try to do it from memory. In Acts two twenty-three, this is Je- this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified, you wicked people, you crucified Him, you killed Him, but this was all part of the eternal plan that the Father might crush His Son for our sake, that we might see something of the glory of Christ through the suffering of that he experienced. God the Father was pleased to make a plan that involved the suffering of His own Son. I don't know a father on this planet that would do that. He does it that He might confine, that might might confuse, even befuddle the minds of men because in the wisdom of God, His purpose was to crush the Son of God for sinners' sake. It was His will that the Lord Jesus Christ would suffer. Now, what was that suffering like? Well, I can tell you it's a suffering that you can't possibly really and truly understand. You can get close. You can approach it in some way. But unless you're the Son of God, you will never really grasp it to its death. However, the prophet Isaiah does give us some help, some insight into what it was like. What is it that the father was going to do? Why, why would he do it? What was the nature of this suffering that the prophet Isaiah highlights for us in this chapter? Well, the prophet gives us some clues as to what this suffering would look like or indeed did look like from our point of view. Too often, I think, we are prone. Like good fundamentalists, we are prone, when we think of the suffering of Christ, to run right to the cross. Now, that wouldn't be wrong, of course, but there was more to it than just that. It wasn't just that Passion Week as we know it. It wasn't just those last few days and last few hours in which we see the suffering of Christ. The fact of the matter is, brothers and sisters, every moment of the Savior's life on this earth was an act of suffering. Imagine you live in a nice home, and you spend a lot of time cleaning it, perhaps you Always want it neat, there's no dust floating around, and there's no odors coming from the garbage can in the kitchen, in the bathroom. And you, you do all the things necessary that you might have a comfortable existence in your home. It's a pleasant place to be. And Imagine if you then were uprooted and forced to live in a garbage dump. I don't know where the garbage dump is here. I think it's over by the spent over there off... St. Joseph's, right? I I've, I picked up garbage many years ago in a, another lifetime, it seems. It wasn't fun. It stunk. It was horrible, miserable to smell. Just the smell, never mind the sight. This is what Jesus did. He left the glories of heaven and all of the Privileges, as it were, that were afforded him as the Son of God. And he willingly and gladly came to this garbage dump we call earth. That he might serve and minister to sinful people. Every minute of his life was an act of suffering. From the moment of his conception to the moment in which he Cried, it is finished, and into your hands I commit my spirit. Every moment of the Savior's life and existence was one of abject suffering. For the Lord of glory is now walking in the garbage can of human existence, that he might save us, save you from that garbage can. You see, there's more to the suffering of Christ than just the cross. And the prophet highlights some of them here. He does it, of course, in poetical language. As you note from your Bibles, you see that the the vast majority of of, of 53, in fact, the entire chapter of 53 is all poetical in nature. It's all structured in such a way. Lots of word plays, lots of uh, word pictures being drawn, language that may be strange to you, which is my job to tell you what it means, which I'm going to do in a minute. But it's all done to show us, show you, that through the suffering of Christ, you see the glory of Christ, because every moment of his life was just that. The prophet begins in verse 2 with what I have classified as an agrarian illustration. It's funny, when I was typing that word, it was giving me fits, you know, kept spelling it wrong. I wanted to drop the, other, the last R, you know, agrarian, I just wanted to leave it out, don't know Why? that was free. Verse 2, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. You read that in our modern 21st century way and you go, what, what does that have to do with anything, frankly? I, I'm not a farmer. I don't do that for a living. I, I, I'm clueless. i clueless. I guess I'll have to get a commentary off the shelf. Let them tell me. Oh, that's fine. What's his point? Well, the word there translated in the ESV as young plant could also be translated as suckling. One commentator explaining this for us, he says it this way, quote, to men, however, the servant appeared as a suckling. That young plant, that little piece off to the side, seemingly having no real value or need. A tender twig that grows on the branch of a tree and draws its life and strength thereunto. Men cut off the sucklings because they take the life from the tree and in men's sight are to be cast off. This is exactly what happened to Jesus. He was the twig that they cut off and removed. Elsewhere, he's described as that cornerstone that men reject, that cornerstone that helps erect a building, builds a building, that men reject, that cornerstone that would eventually and finally crush them because of their rejection. The prophet describes them as a twig, and that's how he'll be treated. The Lord of glory, a twig. Second, he says, he makes reference to this root out of dry ground, that root that we note even earlier in Isaiah's prophecy all the way back in chapter 11, the very first verse, a chapter that's often used around Advent, around what we know as the Christmas season. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. It's unquestionable that the prophet is thinking of those words. This root out of dry ground, the reference here draws out attention to the nature of his birth and the addition of the human nature through the virgin birth itself. God, the eternal God, the infinite, almighty God, the God who was always there and will always be there, the God who had no beginning and will have no end, the God who knows all things, can do all things, the God who is simple spirit puts on rags, This is counterintuitive, isn't it? Is this what you do with royalty? Do you dress royalty in rags? But that's what Jesus did. Willingly. He came to this earth through the virtue of a birth that we've heard of already. A birth that was of very lowly circumstances, humble circumstances. A birth that found him with no place to lay his own head, something that would continue into his entire life. A birth that was in a no-name town, from a no-name town, Nazareth. Could anything good come from there? A birth in a cave or a manger or a barn, whatever you want to look at it. A birth to obscure people. Is this how royalty enters a room? The king of England was to show up in this church? I guarantee you it wouldn't happen that way. He would come in all the pomp and circumstance, but that's not what the prophet Isaiah says, this Lord of glory, the king of kings, how he will come. He comes, as it were, from a dry ground, This lowly conditions, one commentator referencing, says these lowly conditions and background in which the servant was to appear, it suggests the miserable nature of the conditions in the midst of that which the servant's life was to be lived. Some commentators are divided. They wrestle over whether this has any reference at all to the birth itself. I don't know how it can't, but... Be that as it may, the point of this expression is to demonstrate that this king will come in lowly, miserable circumstances and live that way. It presents to us the Lord Jesus in his full outworking of his descent to earth, the circumstances of his birth, his life, lived as a child, growing and learning. You don't think that was Suffering? The Lord of glory, the God of the universe, is learning. In the circumstance in which he ministered to sinners during his three and a half years of public labor. The agrarian illustration. What about his appearance? James Bond, he was not trying to think of actors, and I don't know why my brain's going totally blank. Tom Cruise. Dating myself. He wasn't very pleasant to look at, according to Isaiah. Of average looks, average appearance. He had no form, verse 2, our majesty, that we should look at him Every one of us have heard the expression, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. The idea conveyed here, according to one commentator, is that he was an obscure, outwardly, unimpressive person. Never mind these pictures we've seen, drawn, plastered on homes and in churches. Second commandment violations, by the way. That's not what he looked like. unimpressive in every respect because that wasn't the issue. It's hard not to see this and then think of what happened during the choosing of David as king. As Samuel goes from brother to brother to brother to brother to brother, however many brothers he had, one after the other after the other, and God's like, nope, not him, nope, not him, nope, not him, nope, not him, nope, not him. Him. Why? Because David was gorgeous, that's why. He was something to behold. Maybe he was, but that's not the reason we're given, is it? Men look on the outward appearance. Men see the outward appearance and they're enamored by it. It somehow woos them. It somehow causes them to think differently about them for whatever reason. God looks on the heart. The servant that... the. Jehovah chooses is one who is committed to the mission that Jehovah has to suffer and die for sinful people. Those things, quoting again, those things that in the eyes of many were requisite for leadership were not found in him. Yet the reference should not be restricted to just merely outward qualities and appearance. In fact, the two nouns used here by Isaiah are also used in Genesis 29, 17. Now, just quick rewinding your head. Genesis 29, get get your orientation correct. We're pre-Joseph. We're talking about Jacob. And we're talking about Leah and Rachel, spelled correctly. It's a joke. Leah and Rachel. Rachel was pleasing in the eyes of Jacob, but Leah found no favor in his eyes. The prophet deliberately combines these two nouns here in this verse that he might draw our attention to the fact that there was nothing all that impressive about Christ in his appearance, but it was the heart of the servant of Jehovah. When we see him, we find no beauty that we should desire him. Our judgment, in other words, is according to the outward appearance and is not just and true. It's a sad picture. The servant dwells in the midst of his own people and behind his physical form, the eye of faith should have seen the true glory. But looking upon his outward appearance, Israel found nothing of beauty to delight the eye. How sad it is. You know, I was thinking as I was writing that one point there how often and how quick we are to judge based on appearance. You see someone coming in the room, they stink. I mean, they smell, there's an odor, raggedy clothes. They walk through the door of this sanctuary and they plop themselves down in one of the seats, maybe next to you. What's the first thing that goes through your mind? We are so quick to judge based on outward appearance. But the servant of Jehovah had no outward appearance in which men would behold him. They would hide their faces from him. They would look away from him. But that didn't change the fact that he was still the Lord of glory. James warns us of this very attitude, doesn't he, in James 2? The poor man wearing shabby clothing comes into the assembly and and you say, hey, you you sit over there down at my feet or stand over in the corner, right? This is for the sophisticated people of the church. We sit here. sin. We are too quick to judge just on appearance. The Lord Jesus Christ had no appearance on which we would even be impressed. No acting job for Him in Hollywood. But the beauty was there for those who could see. The beauty is there for you and me now, though you do not see. It's there by faith. You recognize that the beauty is far more than skin deep. The beauty is in, in what he's doing, in what he did do to rescue sinners. How was he treated? There's a series of phrases and verse 3 that highlight for us again more of the suffering of Christ. He wasn't all that attractive according to Isaiah. He was born in humble circumstances, mistreated as a result, all sorts of different circumstances surrounding that. How was he treated by people? You see this as Christians, as those who have professed faith in Christ, and you read of these words and it and it grieves you. At least it ought to. That's because your eyes have been opened to the glory of Christ. That's because you've been changed by the work of the Spirit, and you see these things the way you ought to. How the world see him? Well, the prophet tells us he's despised. He he wasn't just disliked. He wasn't just like, well, you're not one of the popular people. You ever been despised by somebody? It's not fun. Certainly do not feel very good. Despised because I have a limp or despised because I'm missing an eye or I can't hear very well or I got a missing limb Whatever it is, he was despised, according to the prophet. He was not merely rejected by men. As the next clause indicates, he was hated, leading to being rejected by men. The term used here by Isaiah is frequent in the Old Testament. Consider Esau, who despised his birthright. He didn't just not like it. He despised it, which led to his what? Rejecting it, fool, fool. How about Michael for David? She despised him because he danced before the Lord. She didn't like it. She despised him. To be despised is to be neglected. Even the Lord Jesus did not have a home, a place to lay his head. You know, you have it much better than he did. You're going to go home this afternoon and you're going to go to a house in a living room, in a kitchen, and, and all the amenities of this life and you, all the benefit. Jesus didn't have any of that. None. Foxes have holes, birds have nests. I don't even have a place to lay my head. Didn't move the person he was talking to very much. He was despised by people. Second, because he was despised, he was and is. Rejected by men, two aspects should be considered here, and it's why I subtitled this subpoint as "Was and Is." It's exactly that way in my notes: "Was parentheses is parentheses." The Lord of Glory was rejected by men in His day. He came to His own, His own did not know Him. They rejected Him. Nope. You're going to be picked last, if at all, for the ball team. The religious leaders rejected him and his teaching. People reject the Savior today. Oh, sure. They may come to church. They may be sitting there sleeping. They reject him. They hear the message of the gospel, the hope of Christ. They hear the suffering servant of Jehovah, all that he suffered, all that he went through, that he might rescue them from their sins. And they say, nope, don't want it. Not interested. Just like in the days of old, today... People reject the Savior. No, not to his face necessarily. Yet whenever they hear, a good, hear the good news brought by Christ, whenever they hear of Christ, they reject what he offers. What does he offer? What, what is it that he offers to sinners in his not so a pleasing appearance, in his humble circumstances in which he was born, and the way in which he ministered and served the lowliest of people? What does he offer? Well, let's see. That through this suffering comes hope. Through rejection, the offering of atonement is made. They reject him because they cannot see him. They reject him because his message disarms their labors and tells them. They don't want that. Maybe if he came as a king with a crown in a robe. With all the pomp and circumstances, I got to say, if he came that way, they would reject him anyway. They don't want him. It's not just a message, brothers and sisters. It's not just a message that they reject. They reject him. They reject him entirely. John tells us as much in John chapter one. He came to his own; his own knew him not, rejected him, turned aside, went another way, had wanted nothing to do with him. Imagine his brothers and sisters, half brothers and sisters. Must have been nice growing up in that house. Even his own family. Are you rejecting Christ today? I don't know what tomorrow holds for you. I'd love to be able to tell you, but I don't. I don't know what the next five minutes holds or five seconds. But I can tell you this very plainly. You will suffer the same end that the people of Jesus' day suffered if you reject him. You must not. You must embrace the suffering servant of Jehovah if there's any hope at all for you. He's not going to win an Emmy. A golden globe, but He will save your soul. That is to say, you must look upon Him. You must not turn away from Him. You must recognize that He was oppressed. The next phrase, He was oppressed and afflicted. Verse 7. He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. The oppression of the Lord Jesus Christ was not merely in those hours on the cross. That was horrible. You'll never understand it, neither will I. I'd have to be him to understand it. But it was bad, really bad. But it wasn't just that. His whole life was one of oppression. Satan, not just in Matthew 4, three times, do this and do this and do this, and then Satan went off on vacation and did something else for the rest of his existence. That's just an example of the daily, minute-by-minute siege of the suffering servant of Jehovah. Every moment was an act of oppression from the forces of evil. Some scholars believe that during the period of Christ's earthly ministry that the demonic forces were the, at their highest in all of history. What why? Why would that be? Because the son of the lord of glory is on earth. That's why. Day after day, minute by minute, the Lord Jesus suffered this oppression. You might think, "How did He endure it? How did He manage to get through this?" How, the Holy Spirit. Remember the covenant of redemption, and the Spirit promised to uphold Him, keep Him, guard Him, minister to Him, that He might accomplish the work. Yet through rejection and despite being despised and. Oppressed, he might save you and me from all of those things? Because consider the opposite. He doesn't come, and you experience not the rejection of men, you experience the rejection of a holy God for eternity. He was rejected that you might not be rejected. He was oppressed that you might not be oppressed. He was, fourth, verse 5, smitten by God himself that you might not be. The judgment of a holy God, all of it, fell on him, so it wouldn't fall on you. Do you see him? Do you embrace him? Do you understand that this was his glory that he might suffer, and be despised, and afflicted and oppressed? in every way imaginable and beyond imagination that you wouldn't experience any of these things. Well, that's his his treatment both at the hands of men and his own father. What about his attitude? You might think Jesus paraded around Israel with this plastic smile stuck on his face and and singing doo-dah all the time. Isaiah says he was a man of sorrows. His entire life is one of grief, not only physically but spiritually. What was it that moved the heart of the Savior to sorrow? What ought to move every elder in the church to sorrow? Frankly, what ought to move every one of you in this church to sorrow? Sin. As he walked this earth and he looks around at the world that his father made, it was all good, and then sin comes in and wrecks it all and destroys it and makes it of nothing, and he looks around and sees the effects of it, not just in creation, but in people made in his father's image. He was a man of sorrow. He looked out over Jerusalem, didn't he? What was it that made him cry real tears over Jerusalem? What was it that moved his heart to compassion for the poor and helpless of the world? It was not that he it wasn't that he not that he only loved the souls of men, saw the complete and utter destruction sin has made and brought on their lives, but that he, the one who is the answer to that fundamental problem, would be rejected by sinners. The solution is ignored. The mess is made by sin. The solution is there, and they turn aside to stupid things, to the idols of their life and everything else. Isaiah tells us that these people were like sheep. You know, when the Bible uses sheep, it's not usually flattering all we like sheep have gone astray he includes himself each one of us every one has turned to their own way there he is looking over the sheep and he's grieving sorrowful because they are like a sheep they are sheep without a shepherd the blind are leading the blind People are parading themselves right into a lost and hopeless eternity. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Literally, he knows grief. He doesn't just know about it, he didn't just read about it in some book. He knows grief. John chapter 11 he hears the report of his friend. He's dead. Dilly-dallies around, it seems, at least from the eyes of the disciples. He finally makes his way to Bethany. He gets there. He sees the circumstances. He sees what's going on. And what does the text tell us? What does John tell us he does? Ah, don't worry about it. Your theology is a mess, Mary. It's a mess, Martha. I got this. No, he wept. He wept. He was acquainted with grief. And sorrow and agony. He knows himself what it is like to be hampered and hindered by men and also the efforts of the evil one. This is why the writer to the Hebrews can tell you in comfort that you have a sympathetic high priest. You hurt? Are you sorrowful this morning? Are you burdened under the weight of sin? Are you struggling with some issue? Does it seem like the whole world is coming down on your head? Does it seem like there's no tomorrow for today? It's just, it's going to be over? Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. Why? Because he was a man of sorrows and he was acquainted with grief. The grief of men. He understands. That's why you can go to his father in prayer, and find grace and comfort and mercy in time of need. Why did he do all this? And I haven't really even scratched the surface. I've just given you a summary. Why? Why would he do this? Why would anyone willingly subject themselves to the despisement of men, the rejection of men, sorrow and grief, oppression of the highest order, Well, the text tells us why. He does so that he might rescue you and me. It's the only way. Because it was the will of his father. There is no plan B. This is the way in which he would save you and me from our sin. We like sheep. The scripture uses this illustration of an animal to describe you and me. We are like sheep. We wander. Due to our sinful nature, we stray from the commands of God. As such, we are subjected to the judgment of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of your sin is death. It is a death you deserve. Except we are rescued by the suffering lamb, the Passover lamb, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world as John the Baptist declared it, rescued by the suffering Savior, the suffering servant of Jehovah rescues his sheep from the clutches of the evil one, the world, the flesh, and the devil. An exclusive work done by the suffering Lord that he might rescue us rescue you from your sin. Do you see his glory? Do you stand in awe of what he has done? Because if you do not, if you cannot sit back even for a moment and ponder the labors of Christ and all that he suffered, then friends, I fear for your soul. You must see it. Maybe there's no words that can be formed in your mind or in your heart But you still must see it. This is the Lord of glory. He came to suffer that you might not have to, but He also came to serve. The Apostle Paul, and I'm just going to skim through this very, very quickly, but the Apostle Paul, in a passage you well know in Philippians chapter 2, that ancient hymn, it's got a lot of press, bad theology. Good theology, bad theology. The nature of this suffering servant was one of a servant. I came to serve, not be served. Who did he serve? That leper in Mark chapter 1. Mary and Martha in John chapter 11 at the death of Lazarus. His disciples, you, you're there. His labor of suffering, his labor of service was for your sake. This attitude of Christ that he had was one of abject humility. Paul says so in verses 6 through 8 of the text. In what sense did the Lord Jesus humble himself? Well, he humbled himself under the full weight of the law, which he was the maker. You know that law that condemns you? That God holds up to you in eternity and says, okay, so how'd you do? There it is, the Ten Commandments. They're listed in order. How did you do? Well, you know, I kind of messed up there on that fourth one. You know, the one that Lord's Day won? Well, it's just a little thing, you know. Condemned. Well, Well, I mean, everybody makes mistakes. Uh, that's too serious of a one to make. Sorry, that's sin. And, well, hell's your destination. Jesus fulfilled all that for you. He lived under the weight of the law that He made that you might not suffer the consequences of a law-breaking person. Second, He humbled Himself by doing only what the Father told Him to do and say. We saw this last week. Third, Not only did he humble himself under the full weight of the law, doing only what the Father told him, he humbled himself by serving the needs of others, not his own. Think of the number of people that he physically helped and yet was rejected. And fourth, he humbled himself to the point of death, as the text tells us, death on a cross, the embarrassment and shame of it all not a private death, in a room, lethal injection, public, miserable, long. What was the cause of this humility, the salvation of sinners? It was your soul that he was mindful about. Through the cross work of Christ, the atonement is accomplished. He came to save his people. Through his active and passive obedience, he rescues the souls of men. That is why he came to suffer, and that is why he came to serve. Well, what's the result of that then? Certainly there must be. Well, Paul tells us that God exalts him. The glory of Christ is seen by those who profess faith in him. But not just those. So easy to miss this. Everybody will see it. Everybody will see the glory of Christ on that day. Some to eternal damnation and some to eternal glory. Even the creatures under the earth, which is probably a reference to the demonic forces and spiritual places, will bow the knee to the glory of the suffering and serving Savior. But not only does God exalt him, God saves us through him. Back in Isaiah, verse verse 11 of the text, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see. And what? Be satisfied. Those that he came to suffer and serve, suffer for and serve, he will see. He will see the fruit of his labor. And if you know Christ this morning, this afternoon, you're the fruit of the suffering of Jesus Christ. You're the fruit of his service. You are that inheritance that he was given. Think of it. The Lord of glory looks at you and says, you are the fruit of my labors. It's almost difficult to even express with words. The scars of Christ, His suffering and serving for the sake of helpless, ruined, miserable sinners is part of His glory, and it is that which you must bow and give adoration. You will. Make no mistake about it. You will bow. You will do it willingly and gladly, rejoicing all the way, or the angels of heaven will put you on your knees before him. But you will bow. You must bow now. His suffering was not for his sake, it was for yours. His serving for you continues today, daily, hour by hour, minute by minute. He is serving you until you reach that place where you see his glory not by faith, but by sight. What a day it'll be to behold the scars of Christ, and you will see them and behold his glory and be reminded of the suffering servant of Jehovah who suffered that you might not have to for all eternity. Amen. Our Father, we thank You and again praise You and we know and acknowledge that those words, they just fall so far short of what we owe You. Your will to crush Your Son, the wisdom of an eternal God, that the Savior of sinners would suffer for sinners' sake. May we stand in awe of You again. May we praise You. May you help us. May we see our Lord now, maybe in a way we never have before. He is our suffering Savior, the Lord of glory. And we pray it in his name.